Introduction, Episode 1, The Origins of Reformation. Most people would tell you that the story of Anglo-America begins on the banks of the James River in 1607, with the founding of the Jamestown Settlement. Others, perhaps, being more erudite, would tell you that our story begins in fact 22 years earlier with Sir Walter Raleigh's failed colony at Roanoke Island. What I would maintain, however, is that the true story of America must begin far, far earlier with the great upheaval which defined 16th century England, the English Reformation. I strongly believe that if we examine the events surrounding England's Reformation experience, we will hold in our hands the keys to understanding the story of colonial America. Why did the English crown decide to colonize the New World? What took the English crown so long to get around to colonizing the New World? What compelled ordinary Englishmen, and later women as well, to pick themselves up and re-establish themselves in a harsh and foreign land? And finally, what was it that distinguished the British colonies from their Spanish predecessors, that while the Spanish experience of the New World was typified by languor and stagnation, the British experience was that of inexorable expansion and commercial vitality? All of these questions, and more, can be satisfactorily addressed if we look back to the cultural, political, and religious changes wrought by the Reformation. In addition, a healthy understanding of the crucible which was 16th century England will allow us to greater appreciate the differences between the American sects, the Puritans, the Episcopalians, the Quakers, the Presbyterians, and the Catholics. These religious and cultural differences will play a great though oft understated role in the internal affairs of the American colonies, as well as the respective developments of both the North and the South of the New Republic. As such, it is absolutely integral that we give them the attention which they require. Therefore, I have decided to open up this program, which is a history of the United States of America, both in its colonial and republican stages, with a series of introductory podcasts. My estimate is at something like four or five podcasts, exploring the trajectory of the English Reformation, followed by a general overview of England on the eve of colonization, and to so set the stage for the story we will tell. Now, if we gave the Reformation the amount of attention it truly deserves, it would get a full podcast of its own, probably upwards of a hundred episodes. But a noble as project as recounting the English Reformation may be, it is not our project. Our project is detailing the history of the United States, and the Reformation is only a prelude to settlement. As such, we will only give a more general accounting of this time period. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to just fly through the entire story, but it does mean that this will not be a complete history of England during the Tudor period. We will completely skip over some major storylines, we will avoid getting too bogged down in abstruse theological details, and we will in general focus on the more political aspects of the Reformation. So again, 
This is not intended to be a history of England, but rather the prologue to the history of America. That being said, I do hope to give those things that we do focus on some pretty serious attention, and I will try my best to convey the spirit of the times, the passion, the martyrs, the cultural and religious acrimonies which continue to reverberate in our own day and age. Just sit back and enjoy the story of the English Reformation. A lot of heads will roll. The English Reformation was a quite unexpected and explosive affair, and before it came, nobody expected it. The English people were by and by large faithful Catholics, and Lutheran influence from the continent was confined to a small clique of obscure academics. Nonetheless, the contributors to Reformation were there already, lurking unseen beneath a placid waterline. We can identify three distinct contributing factors to the English Reformation, each feeding off of the others to create the perfect storm. Now, each of these factors were insufficient on their own to overthrow the old order, but each was still ultimately indispensable for the Reformation to occur and stick. So let's examine our first factor, widespread anti-clericalism. The church had, by the 16th century, become as much a temporal power as any of the kingdoms of Europe. Archbishops and cardinals lived in opulent palaces, commanded armed retinues, if not actual armies, had their own independent ecclesiastical court system, and in general lived in the lap of luxury. When I was in London, I visited Hampton Court, which was a palace built by Cardinal Wolsey a man who we will hear a great deal about down the line. Let me just tell you, Wolsey was definitely a man of extravagant tastes, and as a general rule, when clergy become obsessed with the pursuit of the temporal, they tend to get somewhat less invested in the pursuit of the eternal and their own pastoral duties. At this point in time, even the popes, or perhaps I should say especially the popes, were perceived as utterly decadent and slothful, Nepotism reigned supreme, absentee priests were rampant, and the general miasma of scandal and corruption hovered around the crowned heads of the church. The people had long since grown cynical about their alleged spiritual superiors, a development which was not at all helped by the tithes and special taxes the clergy were constantly demanding. As the people saw it, corrupt priests drank fine wines and ate fatty meats in their luxurious palaces, sponging their money off of the hard-working people. And as frustrating as the corruption in the church must have been to the common people, it was the financial impositions of the church which most infuriated them. The depth of the animosity which the common people held towards the clergy was put on display in 1514, with the case of Richard Hunt and the mortuary fee, or the fee that the church charged to administer to the dead. Richard Hunt was a London tailor who refused to pay the demanded mortuary fee for the funeral of his infant son in 1511. He was brought by the local parish to the ecclesiastical courts, who of course ruled that he had to pay the fee. Of course, Richard Hunt refused to pay the fee, and when his parish priest humiliated and harangued him in front of the entire church, before actually throwing him out, 
Hun was stirred into action. He went to the civil courts and filed charges in the civil courts against the ecclesiastical courts for violating the Statute of Premonier, which was a generally ignored law passed way back in 1353, which stated that any foreign power or its representatives had no right whatsoever to enforce any sort of tax, whether by force or excommunication, on a subject of the king. Anyone who was found to have violated the Statute of Premonier was subject to the seizure of his property and personal imprisonment at the king's discretion. Now, Richard Hun was technically correct that the church's tithes were in violation of the Statute of Premonier, but the fact remained that although in the 1300s the British crown had been targeting the church, in recent times the statute had been virtually ignored. England was very cozy with the papacy, and anything which was in the papal interest was in the English interest, and vice versa, in the papacy's eyes, anything that was good for England was good for them as well. So when this Hun troublemaker showed up and started causing problems and bringing up that pesky statute of Premonier, nobody was happy, least of all the church. In October 1514, church authorities raided Hun's home and very conveniently found what they considered evidence that Hun was in fact a heretic. He was taken away and imprisoned in St. Paul's Cathedral to await trial for heresy, which was a capital offense, and on the morning of December the 4th was found dead, hanged in his cell. The church maintained that Hun's death was a suicide, and the people might have believed it, if not for the fact that the coroner's jury determined that Hun did not kill himself but was in fact murdered. The people of London were furious, and riots broke out throughout the city. Now, we still don't really know the truth whether Hun killed himself or was murdered, but the very fact that the people of London overwhelmingly believed that the church in fact murdered Hun and then engaged in a shady cover-up operation should point to the profound distrust of the clerical establishment by the people. Now, to make a bad situation worse, the church didn't choose this time to lay low. No, not for them. Instead, they went ahead and tried the dead Hun on the heresy charges, hailing his body into the courtroom, finding him guilty, burning the corpse at the stake, and then seizing all of Hun's property from his heirs. This did not make the people happy. To make a long story short, three priests were subsequently arraigned on charges of murder. Parliament got involved, and although the priests were eventually released at the king's behest due to insufficient evidence, the public came away more convinced than ever that the church had murdered Hun. The church had won this round, but it was a Pyrrhic victory, and when in 1529 the king would unleash Parliament on the church, the story of Richard Hun would be at the forefront of the parliamentarians' minds. All in all, the saga of Richard Hun displays the hatred and distrust which the public held towards an institution they perceived as greedy, corrupt, and domineering.
So what we have here is basically nobody liking the clergy. The lower classes resented the tithes and taxes and financial impositions that were foisted upon them by the church. The petty nobility were green with envy over the vast lands owned by the church. And the greater nobility opposed the church simply because they opposed the church's representative, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. Thus resentment, scorn, envy, and political rivalry were all catalysts for a great deal of antipathy for the Catholic establishment across the entire spectrum of English society, from commoner to noble. The second factor which would play a role in the English Reformation was the Lutheran Reformation. In 1517, a hitherto unknown monk named Martin Luther took on the entire Catholic establishment. At first merely clamoring for a cessation to church abuses, but pretty quickly moving on to challenge the church on doctrinal issues, such as papal supremacy and what exactly constituted a sacrament. While the Lutheran ideas spread like wildfire through Central Europe, they got only limited reception in England. Sure, there may have been small, scattered pockets of sympathy for the Proto-Reformation ideas of John Wycliffe, but as a general rule, the English populace was small-o orthodox. But even though the ideas of Luther didn't capture the minds and the passions of the English masses as they had in Germany, that's not to say that there was no influence at all. Small, discrete groups of academics formed, creating a scholarly nucleus for an English Reformation to crystallize around. At Cambridge, for example, a secret group called Little Germany was formed. And within the ranks of Little Germany were many of those intellectuals and martyrs who would play such a decisive role in the formation of the nascent Church of England. Another of these intellectuals, an Oxford man by the name of William Tyndale, fled abroad in 1524 to the Protestant enclaves of the Netherlands and Germany, and there illegally published the first English translation of the Bible to be derived from the original Hebrew and Greek. This was a translation which very clearly expressed Tyndale's Protestant leanings, which is of course why he had to flee to the Netherlands to get it published. But in any event, Tyndale's work would only further the cause of English Protestantism. Now, the man William Tyndale himself was strangled to death and burnt at the stake in 1536. But his work still endures today, in the form of the King James Bible. Most people don't know this, but over 75% of the King James Version is in fact that of William Tyndale's. It is important to note, however, that despite this creeping growth of Protestantism in England, it would not be until the death of King Henry that this element would truly burst on the scene. The reason for this is that, rather ironically, Henry was a bitter enemy of Luther and the doctrines of Protestantism. In fact, the king hated them so much that in 1521, he penned a fierce and highly successful polemic against Luther, which he called the Assertio Septim Sacramentorum, or Defense of the Seven Sacraments. When the break of Rome would finally come about, 
Henry would do everything in his power to ensure that the conflict would be solely about papal versus royal supremacy, not doctrinal divergences from orthodoxy. The third factor which led to the English Reformation, and by far the most immediate catalyst, was the running conflict of sovereignty between the crown and the church. Now, on the papal level, this wasn't necessarily a problem which irked Henry, at least not prior to the thwarting of his dynastic ambitions by the papacy. After all, remember that he's a monarch in extremely high standing with the Pope for his spirited defense of Catholic doctrine, for which he was granted the honorary title of Fidei Defensor, or Defender of the Faith. Nonetheless, the most probable reason why Henry was unbothered by matters of sovereignty was simply because he believed that the papacy would grant him whatever he required. For God's sake, his chief advisor and chancellor also happened to be the Cardinal of England. It simply never occurred to him that extraordinary events could compel the Pope to oppose him on a truly important matter. When the Pope would oppose him on a truly important matter, all hell would break loose. But on a more local level, this was something, this conflict was something, which already annoyed the king. The monastic orders in England had long held certain rights and privileges which interfered most irritably with the exercise of royal duties. Among the most odious of these rights were the benefit of clergy and the privilege of sanctuary. What the benefit of clergy was, was originally a law which gave clergy, even members of more minor monastic orders, the right to have their criminal cases heard by an ecclesiastical rather than a civil court. Now this was a pretty good deal for the accused, as the ecclesiastical courts were generally far more lenient than the civil courts. Over time, however, this somewhat reasonable law mutated into the indisputably absurd privilege that any member of the clergy can just get their first crime free. This was quite obviously an obstacle in the way of effective law enforcement, as not only could the clergy just get away with their first crime, but even common criminals who were merely able to read were able to just join some minor clerical order and walk free. The other law was the privilege of sanctuary. This was a law predicated on the belief that it was immoral to employ force on holy ground. As the church was holy ground, any criminal who sought refuge within the walls of an abbey or a cathedral was to be granted sanctuary. The technical law allowed for a criminal to seek refuge in a church for up to 40 days, after which he had to either surrender himself up for trial or leave the country under a guarantee of safe passage. By the time of the Tudors, however, the 40 days limit was all but ignored by many abbeys, including Westminster, and the hundreds of criminals safely ensconced behind the cathedral walls would oftentimes sally out to further their criminal careers. This led, quite obviously, to a great deal of ill will from the ordinary populace and the magistrates. Between 1512 and 1520, Henry VIII pursued a vigorous course of curtailing these privileges. 
passing a series of legislation which declared a great many crimes unclergyable, or basically crimes that one could not claim the benefit of clergy for, limited the definition of clergy, so that's basically getting rid of all those minor monastic orders, and abolished most of the sanctuaries. The church remonstrated, and again Parliament sided against the church. In the course of the proceedings, Henry VIII ominously foreshadowed the coming showdown by declaring that the kings of England had never known any superior on earth. So there we have it. Three very different elements which all will come to play in the coming storm. Popular anti-clericalism, Lutheran ideology, and royal sovereignty. Now, not all of these forces will be equally involved in the multiple stages of the English Reformation. In the first Henrician phase, the landscape is dominated almost entirely by the matter of the king's prerogatives with the anti-clericalism and Lutheranism playing only relatively minor supporting roles. In the second stage, the regency of King Edward VI, we see Lutheranism take center stage, while royal prerogative basically doesn't exist. I mean, the king is just a child. By the time Queen Elizabeth comes around, for the final stage of the Reformation, the battlefield will have already shifted to the beliefs and loyalty of the general public, who will come to mostly accept the Anglican Church during the course of Elizabeth's long and eventful reign. And so, without any further ado, let's get started on the story. In 1501, England had a royal wedding. King Henry VII's eldest son and heir apparent, Prince Arthur, was getting married. The bride was Catherine of Aragon, daughter of the union between the famous and powerful Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, together the co-monarchs of Spain. The marriage, arranged when the bride and groom were both three years old, brought Henry VII many benefits. For starters, the marriage solidified the traditionally close relations between the English and Castile. Additionally, marrying into the prestigious de Trastamara dynasty, who had been kings for centuries, greatly strengthened the legitimacy of the Tudor dynasty, who had only risen to the English throne 16 years earlier at the Battle of Bosworth Field. And finally, Catherine came along with a welcome diary of 200,000 crowns to the English treasury, which was of course a massive sum of money. But all of King Henry's plans were thrown into disarray when only five months later, the Crown Prince Arthur died of an unknown sickness. Desperate to retain the diplomatic clout and the money which he had gained with this royal marriage, Henry decided to marry off Catherine to his next son, and now his new heir to the throne, ten-year-old Henry VIII. Of course, this marriage would have to wait until young Henry would come of age, and in practice it waited until Henry VIII ascended to the throne. But it was arranged. Henry would marry Catherine, for better or for worse. There was one hurdle, however, which needed to be cleared. Catherine was, as Arthur's widow, Henry's brother-in-law, 
and scripture was very clear about such a marriage, which it considered incest. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. However, the tutors found the loophole. By canon law, a marriage was only considered to have come in effect if and when the marriage was actually consummated. Now, Catherine maintained, under oath, that her five-month marriage to Arthur was in fact never consummated, a state of affairs which would allow Henry VIII to marry her without sin. Pope Julius II assented, and Henry and Catherine were wed in June of 1509, just two months after Henry's ascension to the throne. Fast forward 18 years. 18 extremely eventful, but entirely irrelevant years, at least for our purpose. Catherine has been pregnant a total of seven times, and yet the only living child of Catherine and Henry is a single daughter, Mary. Back in 1511, she had actually given birth to a non-stillborn baby boy, but he too had died after only 52 days of life. Now, by this point, by 1527, Catherine had aged significantly, and it was quite clear that she would never bear children again. That meant that Henry had a succession issue on his hands. You see, the English were not too keen on the idea of a female monarch. The last time that had happened, during the reign of the Empress Matilda, the realm had been torn apart by civil war and intrigue and it was widely believed that women were simply incapable of effectively wielding the reins of power. Henry needed a male heir, and he needed one soon. Henry decided that the reason he had not been able to father a healthy son with Catherine was because of divine displeasure with their union. He did not know whether Catherine had in fact consummated her marriage with Arthur or not, but whatever had happened it was apparently not the will of God that they remain married. So Henry opened negotiations with the Pope to annul his marriage and to retroactively delegitimize his daughter Mary as having been born in sin. And of course, as I'm sure you've figured out by now, this is not just about Henry fearing for his soul, or even needing an heir. Henry was in love with another woman. He was in love with a young and lively woman by the name of Anne Boleyn, who was a niece of the Duke of Norfolk, the foremost duke in the realm. It is an open question among historians exactly how much Henry's discreditable behavior towards his wife of 20 years was spurred by what? Was he genuinely afraid for his soul? Was it his dynastic concerns? Was he simply no longer enamored with his aged wife and now sought to replace her with the young and vivacious Anne? In all likelihood, the truth was, as historian Geoffrey Elton writes, that with all his strong will, quick intelligence, and learned interests, the king was essentially a man of little depth. He had the egoist's supreme gift, the superb conviction that right is always on his side. Hypocrisy did not enter into it. His conscience invariably and quite sincerely amalgamated the demands of reason and desire into an assurance of righteousness. 
He did not think that he wanted to exchange wives or secure the succession, and had better find the respectable cloak for such desires. He thought that he was sinfully living with Catherine, and had better have the matter cleared up. Thus, all these points of policy and personality became a question of canon law. Whatever his motives were, these negotiations will bring about a process which has altered the course of world history. And next episode, we will recount the events of, and introduce the major characters in, the first, or Henrician stage of the English Reformation. I'll see you then, on From Settlement to Superpower. Thank you.